to open your Bibles, Acts chapter 17. We'll be continuing in there. Uh, you'll, you'll recall from last time, um, Paul and Silas were in uh, Berea, and uh, Pastor Joe talked with us about the Bereans and, and how, they, um, how they measured Paul's teaching against the Scriptures. Uh, and then uh, Paul went on to Athens, and uh, Silas and Timothy uh, stayed behind, and they were on their way to catch up. And that's kind of where we pick up in this story. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And they said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a joy and a privilege it is to, to open your word, to read your word, and have you communicate with us. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate these words for us, that we would not only hear your word, but that we would obey your word, that we would not try to bring ourselves over your word, but that we would find ourselves under it. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I remember I, the year, I think it was 2000 or 2001, and uh, about that time I was pretty, um, pretty involved with my faith. I took my faith pretty seriously, and uh, I was in a uh, family Christian bookstore, uh, as I often was. Some of you may remember those. Some of you are like, I've never heard of that before, but uh, it's just a you know, Christian bookstore. They would sell knickknacks and, and other things. And, and I remember walking up to the counter, and uh, right there, displayed on the counter, was this thing called a CD, a compact disc, for those of you that don't know. Um, it would uh, have information on it, and you could play it if you had a CD player. And uh, this one had music. I know we don't have those anymore, so I feel the need to have to explain that, because my children surely would not have any idea what I'm talking about. But so there was a CD, and on the front cover it said, Casting Crowns. And, and I didn't know anything about the group, but I was super into music. I, I loved Jesus, and it was on the counter, so it had to be good. So, so I picked it up, and I threw that into my car, and, and I drove off uh, after paying for it, of course. And, um, and I listened to those songs, and I still remember, uh, I, lo I loved the whole album. Um, I think it was their first album. Since then, they've come out with a lot. Um, but there was one song in particular that, uh, that kind of was like, wow, that, that's interesting. And it still kind of sticks with me a little bit. Um, and, and it goes, it, it went something like, uh, something like this. Um, All work, no play may have made Jack a dull boy. But all work and no God left Jack with a lost soul. But he's moving on full steam. He's chasing the American dream. He's going to give his family 
finer things. It hit me when I listened to it because I realized that that was probably the world that I had grown up in, as, as many of you have grown up in it. The American dream. That's why so many people flock here. The, the desire to, to better yourself. The, the truth claim of the American dream is that um, if you work really hard, you can make it. You can earn enough money. You can be happy. You can find security. You can better yourself, and you can better your family for generations. And I'm not here to debate that truth claim today. What I am here to do is to bring up the second part of that. That God being left out of someone's life leaves them with a lost soul. And that's the real tragedy. Because all of the work, all of the money will still be thrown into fire and be worthless if you don't have God. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Today when we look at Acts chapter 17, uh, 16 through 21, we look at the, uh, the Athenian culture at the time and what Paul does when he observes this culture and how he approaches it. And what we're going to see when we look at this text is that that culture is very similar to our culture today. And that should actually encourage us because what it means is as we look at our culture and we see that, that um, nobody seems to care about God anymore, uh, that, that people may say they have faith but their lives don't reflect it, uh, there are calls for competing things for worship, we see it's all right here in the culture in Athens. So we can learn from Paul and we can take courage because God is good and God is powerful and his message can still work today. Amen? So we're going to see that. And we're going to look at some of the things that Paul does uh, to help us. So as we begin, let's take a look at how close this culture is. For starters, you see that... Uh, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. That's how, that, that's how this passage kind of ends. L telling or listening to something new. It's all about the novel, right? It's all about the new. A lot of times that's true in our culture as well. If there's a new idea, that's what we're going to latch on to. We're going to read those books. We're going to watch those YouTube videos. We're going to listen to those people because it's new and it's exciting. So... It must be good. The same thing was going on here. Also, look at, look at who he's interacting with, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, these philosophers. Their ideas are still very prevalent today. Uh, the Epicureans were, um, were kind of marked by this idea of um, there's nothing to fear in God. There's nothing to feel in death. Uh, pleasure can be attained and pain can be endured. They were indifferent to gods because they, they were kind of like what we would call a, uh, an agnostic secularist today. So agnostic, I'm just saying like uh, someone who, who's like, yeah, there might be gods, but we don't know. We don't know if there is a god or multiple gods. So we might as well just live our lives the way we want in a, in a secular culture. Um, that kind of summarizes a lot of the Epicurean views. 
and, and how they lived their life. They equated pleasure with being good. It, it was like equal. They equated pain with evil. So in other words, anything that brings you pleasure is good. And anything that brings you pain is evil. That sounds similar? That, that, is, that is almost um, exactly some of the things that are put out in our culture today. Be true to yourself. Like, whatever brings you happiness is called good. It does not matter if this word from God says that it's not good. Whatever brings you pain, just avoid it for it's evil. In the last four weeks, we've, we've taken a look at what, um, what Paul has done for the gospel in the book of Acts, and we see suffering, don't we? And we've talked about how suffering is actually called for to suffer for the gospel. But they would say, if that's, if that's painful to you, just don't do it. That's bad. That's evil. We don't want you to do that. Those same ideas are true today. And the Stoics um, were... were uh, essentially pantheists, and they, and they recognize uh, polytheism. So the, this idea that, uh, that you can worship the earth, worship the universe, mother nature, uh, be in one with uh, nature, uh, many gods, everything's all good. That, that was kind of the Stoic philosophy. Um, they were also big into like reason. Reason would get you to uh, this state of happiness the world state, a unifying uh, one state idea uh, throughout the world, and the cosmopolis, cosmo yeah, I think I said it right this time. It's just like this community of the great city. That, uh, we're all one people uh, working together. So they, they were uh, trying to promote uh, the unity of humanity and kinship with the divine. That was kind of what their ideas were. And that sounds really good, right? Hey. We should all be one. We should all be unified, and we should have kinship with the divine. The problem is, is like when, when their belief system is predicated on polytheism, on having many gods, or uh, worshiping the environment, or worshiping nature, how do, you, how do you have kinship with the divine? What's the divine? Who defines the divine? It can be defined by your own thoughts. And then somehow we're supposed to be unified as humanity by all believing in different gods and having kinship with all separate gods. And you can see that it creates problems, but do you also see that that culture is eerily similar to what we see today? As long as you're true to what you believe, that's good. The very concept of truth nowadays is actually in question, right? Now there's multiple truths. Your truth, my truth. Everybody gets a truth. That becomes rather, rather difficult when we open God's word and we see that that idea is not true. So then what do we do with that? That's the world that we're living in, and that's the world of Athens when Paul shows up. So take courage. It's not the end. God's been there before. His word is powerful. Stay true to his word, as Paul does. Let's look. What does Paul do? Well, 
First, I want you to notice that he says that he's waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, and his spirit was greatly upset because he sees the city full of idols. Your translation may say provoked. Uh, the idea uh, behind this word, it's, it's used in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and, and in the Psalms of uh, God's anger towards idolatry. So what I want you to get from this is that it's perfectly acceptable. In fact, I would say it's good for our spirits to be greatly upset when we look around and we see idolatry everywhere. God hates idolatry. Paul is provoked here. When we look at our culture and we see idolatry, if it frustrates you, it should. It should frustrate you. It should upset you. It should bother you that people are led astray from the one true God by anything and everything they are willing to give their hearts to. That should upset you. And if it doesn't, we should think about that because it's not in character with what we learn about God. Take a look. Um, you, can, uh, you can just write this down if you want. You don't have to turn there. But uh, Exodus uh, chapter 20 some of you may remember that's when uh, the first ten or the Ten Commandments were given for the first time. Um, the first commandment, first commandment given: "You shall have no other gods before me." You shall have no other gods before me. It's not like you should have no other gods unless you really want to before me. You shall have no other gods before me. The second, you should not make for yourself a carved image or anything, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. First two commandments. It's pretty serious, right? That, like, if, God, if God wants to say that right off the bat, it must mean something. It's got to be important. If you uh, did turn there, flip a little bit more forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and uh, verse 4. Sometimes you'll hear this called the great Shema. Shema is this Hebrew word which means hear or listen. And it had this idea of like not only listen but obey. It's like a parent telling, telling their child, would you just listen to me? You're, you're not really saying only hear me, right? You want them to obey you. Um, uh, verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. Everything that you are, you are to love God with. And I love what Jana prayed um, at the close of worship. Um, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but essentially what she was saying was, if there's anything that we place before our worship of you, would you, would you take that? Would you... Would you get rid of it? If there's anything that competes for our worship, what she's doing is she's saying, God, if there's idolatry in our heart, show us that and help us to live for you. Help us to love only you. Help us to love you with all of our being. I love that prayer. Um, but when we look at the way idolatry is defined in the Bible, we see that it in those days, it was a lot of carved images and stone that people would actually bow down and worship. And, and we look at our culture today and we go, well, you know, I mean, maybe 
if there's like a Buddha statue or something like that that somebody bows down to, I could see that you know, being the same, but there's not a lot of that prevalent in our American culture. Um, so it's pro this probably doesn't apply to us. Love the Lord your God with all your being, and you shall have no other gods before me. That's what God says. So as soon as you love something else more than God, that's your idol. That's your idol. Um, one writer said this, idolatry extends beyond the worship of idols and images and false gods. Our modern idols are many and varied. Even for those who do not bow physically before a statue, idolatry is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Pride, self-centeredness, greed, gluttony, a love for possessions, and ultimately rebellion against God. Is it any wonder that God hates it? That's idolatry. And as I read that, some of you might be like, okay, I'm kind of getting it now. So what does idolatry actually look like today? Well, anything you put before God. Anything you put before God. Maybe it's an obsession with your finances. Maybe it's just that little bit more in your bank account before you get to retirement. the next rank, the next promotion. Maybe you're going to be like Jack and try to earn your way and leave God in the dust from that song. Uh, when I was thinking about idolatry this week, uh, a lot of things came to mind, one of which, um, Super Bowl Sunday. That Lombardi trophy. Y'all... Um, if there's one day of the year in American culture that just might be like the pinnacle of idolatry, it could be Super Bowl Sunday. Think about the millions upon millions of people that are dedicated to that one event. All of the money, all of the time. Good Christ-following people need to skip out on communal worship because they need to get home and get the weenies on the grill. Prep for the day. And if I'm stepping on your toes, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, the reason why it's a big deal is because it hits me. It hits me. I probably read just as much about the Green Bay Packers as I do Scripture. So I need to watch that. We all need to watch that. And some of you guys are like, oh, you should be idolizing the Cowboys. Well, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should only worship God, okay? But the point is the Super Bowl. It's kind of funny, and we chuckle about it, but it's also not funny. It competes for our affection. It competes for our worship. We can't let that happen. We need to be aware of that. Idolatry is as prevalent in our culture today as it is in the time of Athens. And Paul sees it, and he's greatly upset by it. And that should be the response in us. Set by idolatry. What's another? Uh, this hit me first service, and I'm going to mention it again. Please don't email me. If, you, if you're upset with anything I say today, my email is steve at delrealbiblechurch.com. <laughs> um, but when you read the Word of God and you put yourself over the Word of God, meaning like I'm going to decide what this means for me, rather than the Word of God being 
over you and you allowing it to speak into your life, that's idolatry. That is you saying, I'm better than God. I know better. God may have said that wives are to submit to their husbands, but I know better and I'm not going to do that. That's idolatry. God may have said that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Man, but God don't live with my wife and I know better. That's idolatry. That's selfishness. That is self-centeredness. We have to root that out. We can't live that way. Anytime there's something in this word that is commanded of us and we choose to rebel against it, you're choosing yourself over God. We can't let that happen. We need to see it in our culture just as Paul saw it and let it bother us. But what do we do when it bothers us? Well, look at what happens. So he addresses the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happen to be there. There is a consistent message of the gospel. A consistent message of who Jesus is, of his death, burial, and it says his resurrection. And that was like a completely foreign concept to the Athenian culture, this idea of resurrection. In fact, some of them thought that he may be even talking about another god named Anastasis, which is that Greek word for resurrection, because they just didn't get it. It is a consistent message. Every day, he was speaking with them. Are we consistent in our message? Are we consistent in our gospel? Are we willing to step into the marketplace? And when I say marketplace, I'm talking about your lives, work. Yeah, maybe H-E-B, maybe a real marketplace, right? But uh, I'm talking about your life, work, who you're hanging out with, your neighbors. Are you willing to be consistent in your life and who you are and representing who God is and what he's done for you and tell people about the good news of Jesus and his resurrection? That's what Paul does. Another thing I might get blasted for on email, but I want you to see it. He does not uh, organize a group of people and give them all signs that say, you are living a life of idolatry and we hate idols. You are living a life of idolatry and we hate idols. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't try to infiltrate a political scheme and, and correct the wrongs of, of the Athenian way of life preaches the good news of Jesus. And why does he do that? Because the good news is what changes people's hearts. It's spirit-empowered message of God. And all of the uh, possibly good things that might come from getting involved in politics or your community and trying to affect change, all of those good things, they don't matter if you don't change people's hearts. people don't believe in Christ, they're still going to hell. And if they don't believe in Christ, then they're still subject to the bonds of idolatry. Their idols might just change a little bit. 
I, uh, th- there was a, there's a proverbial story uh, that I heard, and, and I share it sometimes, but it, it's about this uh, uh, teenager who starts going to youth group, right? And, and his life does not reflect anything that you would expect of a, of a Jesus-following teenager, okay? And he starts going to the youth group because there's a girl there. There's a girl there, right? And she's really serious about her faith. And pretty soon, that teenager's life starts to change. And he starts going to Bible studies, and there seems to be this movement towards living for Christ. And then at some point, it all falls apart. And some people might say, well, he just, you know, lost his faith or something like that. But it could also be that his idol just changed. He no longer idolized the cool kids that were leading him astray. He idolized this girl. And he was going to change to be with that girl. Do you, do you see how dangerous this idea of idolatry is? Um, Augustine c- called it incurvatus in se. It's a Latin kind of meaning the inward turn. In other words, uh, original sin, when sin happened, all of humanity is now turned in on itself, self-centered, self-focused. And, and the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our whole lives as Christians is that continual turning back out towards people and to God. And Martin Luther picks up on this. He says, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. That's how, idol- that's how dangerous idolatry is, and, and we need to be serious about that. We need to recognize that in the culture, and we need to stand against it by preaching the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Um, the last thing that I really want to talk about, notice their response. What does this foolish babbler want to say? That's how the philosophers respond to him. What does this foolish babbler want? Say. Some, some of your translations may only say babbler, but the idea is like someone who's foolish. Uh, the word is like, it, it's used of like birds flying along and they would just like pick up a seed and then drop it over here. And the idea is that they just pick up little pieces of information here and there and they try to assimilate it all, but when they try to express it, it just comes out like, like babbling and, and you look foolish and there's, there, there's no real content behind it. That's, that's the idea here. The next thing I want you to see is that when you share Christ with people, there will be people that will call you a foolish babbler. There will be people that call you a foolish babbler. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about this. Uh, in verse 14 he says, but a natural man, and when he, see, when he says natural man, what he means is like someone who's not of the spirit, an unbeliever. When a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, or sorry, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. When you talk to people about Jesus and you try to share the good news of Christ and the resurrection, people might look at you and think you're crazy, Right? can't be true. That was so long ago. Will you give up those outdated ways? Come on. We can, 
We can fix the world together. We don't need to, uh, we don't, we don't need to adhere to the teachings of, a, of an archaic way of life. We're so much better than that. Look at, look at everything we've accomplished. Look at all the science we have. Look at everything we've learned in psychology. I'm not saying that we should avoid these, uh, the things that we've learned since then, but there will be people that choose to push off the message of Jesus Christ because you're going to look foolish. But that's okay. Our job is not to, to look super eloquent. I mean, look at me. They let me preach up here, you know? <laughs> Our job is to be faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel. Our job is to be faithful to God. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for, uh, for the grace and mercy that you bestow upon us. I thank you that even though uh, my own heart and our hearts uh, go astray that you uh, bring us back in kindness through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would help us to see the idolatry in our lives. I pray that you would help us to, to recognize that the idolatry of the world that we live in, of this generation, is not that different than what Paul was preaching to. Help us to see that that his message is consistent, that it is the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that will change people, that will save people. God, help us to take courage in that. Help us to live lives that are consistent with your scripture. Help us to be consistent in our message. Help us to look forward to the day when the king will return. And we can say to him that we love him with everything. Everything inside of us. That we weren't led astray by other affection. That we didn't bow down and worship at another altar. God, help us to be gracious when we interact with our culture. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.